0: Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a 3-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter consumervc for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the role of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to theconsumervc.com. Thank you, Joe Tonis, for the introduction to today's guest, Michael Nogan, one of the founding partners of Overton VC. Overton Venture Capital invests in pre-series A companies who demonstrate early success through revenue and market validation. Some of their portfolio includes Perch, Stant, and Joylux. Previously, he founded Theality, which became a national maternity apparel manufacturer and distributor carried by over 200 retailers, and he led global strategy at Gap and headed finance and strategy at 1-800-Flowers.com. Without further ado, here's Michael. Hey, Michael! Thanks so much for joining me. How are you? I'm great, Mike. I'm super excited to be here. Oh, thanks so much. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much again for taking the time, Michael. I really appreciate it. So Michael, what was your initial attraction to entrepreneurship and founding Theality? So Theality, which is a fusion of the words theory and reality. Theality
1: was a maternity brand, contemporary label. Started the business. It, really, the idea came to me, uh, I guess, back in 2003. I was living in New York City, working in finance, going back and forth between New York and Connecticut to my office. And I always wanted to have my own thing. I didn't know what it would be, but wanted to do something. But it had to potentially be large enough that it was just, you know, my own company. and growing up in Texas. Most of my friends were married before me, had kids before me. And I kept hearing about this perpetual need for more fashion for maternity clothes. Clearly, I'm not the target demographic. I don't come from the apparel space. But I was so fixated on, is this really a problem? Or are these just my friends telling me that that they can't find something? And turns out that it really was a problem. And there really wasn't a more fashion forward maternity line. So I started this business in 04. And yeah, that was the genesis of the brand. Essentially, I had this rabid curiosity of how Things work, but I've always had a passion about focus on real needs, listening to the customer. And, you know, essentially I bootstrapped everything, figured a lot of this stuff out. And, you know, over four and a half years, we were selling to about 300 stores around the country. And in 07, we became the first maternity brand carried by Zappos, and that effectively became the category.
0: That's amazing. That's super impressive. What I find really intriguing about your career is that you found it a company, you had a successful exit, you then went on to work in consulting, and then you other senior positions at some of the legacy brands like Gap and 1-800-Flowers. It seems like you kind of flipped the switch there. And I would love to learn like some of your learnings working for and also consulting for, you know, some of the legacy brands.
1: It's a great question because I, I I really have taken that kind of that securitist route, right? But, you know, part of it is that DNA of just, you still have that entrepreneurial spirit. So, you know, whether or not it's a brand, like a small independent brand or a legacy brand like The Gap or a multifaceted brand like 100 Flowers, the linchpin is always about giving the customer what the customer wants or the customer needs. So there is that natural tie-in. Some of the key learnings though I've found is that even... Very large companies are still resource constrained. So, if you're on the merch team, you might have to do you know more with less. Or if you're coming, I was on the corp strategy side, so you know we're constantly doing these projects, and all of a sudden you need to you know be able to make very quick snap decisions whether or not it has to do with biz dev or just kind of long term planning. And you know, I guess the key takeaways would be one, no matter the size of the business, always it's always about the customer and making sure that you don't lose sight of that. And then the second would be how to do more with less. And these are two, you know, kind of key things that we look at at over 10 when we make investments.
0: No, that's super helpful. And I love how even working at the corporate level or starting your own company as well, it always comes back down to the customer. And that's also really interesting insight that even at the corporate level, you still have to figure out how to do more with less, that you're still resource constrained. It's almost a little bit similar in a funny way to because, of course, as an entrepreneur, you're very much resource constrained. So that's really interesting takeaway. I'd love to learn why then you decided to go into VC and start Overton and how that whole partnership came together.
1: I guess one of the things I probably should have said in your previous question was, you know, why, you know, as someone who was a former, you know, entrepreneur and and running a company, you know, flips the switch and now you're part of these larger organizations. So you become this, you know, small cog in a big wheel. So part of my, I guess, what makes me tick is being able to do things, you know, it's the test and learn being able to be, you know, really, really fast, you know, the 80 20 rule and and so forth. So that being said, this gets to your question about, you know, how did Overton come together? So I've known my, my business partner, uh, Carrie Miller for quite some time. We were both very active in different philanthropies. Not only have we been for a long time. She's been a serial angel investor. I've ever since my own startup. I've been a mentor at, at various startups, so I've always given back and try to stay at least keep one finger on the pulse on the startup community per se. And I guess about two years, two and a half, three, almost three years ago, we we're having breakfast during one of our catch ups, and she w- had floated the idea that she was thinking about raising a fund. I was doing some consulting work, and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be really really cool if given, you know, she's raising a fund, I thought about doing a funnel, although it was never that Serious, but was trying to figure out a way to get back into the startup world, and we started thinking about ways to do that. Would it be a fund? If we had a fund, what kind of fund would it be? Would we be just an angel, like angel investors? Would we be more platform-like? And we both agreed that you know we have two different core superpowers. Carrie is very much about the talent. She comes from the talent strategy side. She there's a lot of data, and it's just where do companies need the most help, particularly early on, and it's really about the talent the core team how do you scale you know that next critical hire etc and then my core superpower is about the consumer the go to market how to scale you know I'm a former operator so we thought we decided to form over 10 as a micro fund to focus on the evolving consumer but we were operational investors meaning that when we get involved, we have to be able to add some sort of value add. And so it gives us the opportunity to stay connected and be wedded in our strategy and really get our you know tentacles you know wet and so forth. So that was our pact, and we kind of continue to flush that out and and Overton was born.
0: That's awesome. That's really terrific. And I love how you both thought about it in terms of the complementary values that you both come because I've seen in terms of partnerships, just in with different investors that I've had on the show, when it comes to complementary skills, one might come from an entrepreneur background and maybe successful founder or the founder had a successful exit. And the other one comes from more of a traditional finance background. But I think what's really fascinating about you and your partner's backgrounds is she comes from, you know, a very talent, which talent is so crucial at the early stages. And you come from the actual you know strategy part. And the actual like execution part in terms of a, a founders who's been there. So I think that's just a really fascinating dynamic uh, for both of you.
1: But I also want to be clear too, because you raise a very important point. And actually, and we heard, I think it was yesterday that Elon Musk had, you know, he wasn't very fond or had never been fond of MBAs. You know, having a financial acumen is super important. So, you know, neither Karen nor I have, you know, been like pure investment bankers, for example. And I think that's kind of where your example was. We are very much about unit economics. And so we have that. But, you know, to your point, having that talent lens and that go to market lens really is what we believe a differentiated approach to early stage investing.
0: Totally. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I'm just really curious. This actually relates to my previous question before we started talking about Overton. But you know, one of the things that I'm very curious about, and since you come from both, maybe if it's fair to say the corporate side of things, working at Gap and one flowers as well as starting your own company and having that experience, scaling that. And now as an investor, how do you think about innovation? Because you know, corporations have at times struggled to innovate, which of course is great for investors and great for for founders, because that leads to, you know, acquisitions. But I'd love to hear your thoughts in terms of how you think about corporations establishing maybe their own brands or just your thoughts around innovation in general.
1: Sure. You know, I I've worked, like you said, for you know, some large brands, but I've also been a founder. And I think even coming when I was in management consulting for a few years before joining Gap, you know, it seemed no matter the client, the issues are always the same. So, you know, companies. In general, especially very large ones, the ones that are have homegrown systems and and it's kind of like the way it's been, they struggle to innovate for a couple reasons. One is, you know, sometimes it's self-inflicted, right? So. You might have uh, silos within an organization who are competing against each other versus looking for the kind of the the collective interest. So, you know that that's one thing that obvious I've I've seen kind of where companies struggle. Also, even companies like Gap, it's a good example where sometimes it's very much about inward looking versus outward looking. And so that's what to your point, a number of large companies create innovation centers and venture arms, right? To give kind of let's see what else is out there, but it's still part of our Procter and gamble or, you know, whatever brand it may be. You know, I think just historically, when you're a very large organization, Sometimes you're slower to react. Either it's because you have to deal with Wall Street, so earnings. So it's almost like if you're going to make an investment, that investment people are making it for the short term in order for like the street to be happy versus long term. And so when you're smaller, nimble, you can do a lot of things. You can innovate it more quickly. And so sometimes now you're seeing very large companies gobble up you know areas where they can either grow more quickly because organic growth isn't there because it might be in a slower growth or they're just purchasing because they want to acquire new customers. So because they're going after maybe it's a demographic change.
0: No, that's really helpful. I always just find it interesting just hearing about how to think about innovation. I know that you mentioned as well earlier that, you know, like almost the scrappiness as well, that maybe you have to be when you work at a large company too, with you have to do more with less, which is very similar to the entrepreneur.
1: You know, a lot of times in most instances, it may be a lot less expensive to you know purchase a brand or purchase something to bring it in-house than it is to create it in-house. So
0: that's a great point. That's a great point. I'd love for you to walk us through a little bit on your due diligence process and how you evaluate early stage businesses.
1: So we spend a lot of time. We bet on the team. You know, we're betting on the founders. There's not usually much history in terms of these companies, so you know, really trying to understand what is it the company is solving. You know, maybe there's an answer today, maybe there's not, but it's really about what's really special about this team, whether or not it's current iteration or future. Because we like to partner with teams and and bring resources to the table. Aside from a check, how collaborative? Right. So a lot of times we, you know, as part of the relationship, we try to figure out is this a team? Like, do we want to be wedded together for multiple years? Right. You know, is this relationship going to work? And so that's, we spend a lot of time on the people on the market. We look at how large the market, you know, is there a demonstrated demand? How is this product going to scale? How disruptive or what sort of defensible moat does this company present? And then, we look at current performance. We only invest in revenue producing. We're, we just want to make sure that it's post-MVP. We're a seed-focused fund. we like to be either the first or follow-on in the first institutional check-in. So is there a need? You know, We spend time talking to customers. We look at the product. So is the customer learning about this organically? Or are these just paid customers that will eventually fall off? So how, what does the community look like? And are they actually solving you know, a real need? And then finally, which is all Almost as important as the people. But when we invest over 10, how can Overton add a creative value to the business? So in, in other words, it is that true check plus. And we have a bench of now 20 operating partners. And these are functional experts who we bring in as part of our due diligence process that are also available for you know, portfolio assistance to help companies get over certain hurdles. So if we can identify specific things that we can actually add creative value to, we will not invest. So that's part of our whole due diligence process that we work with, you know, hand in hand with with the company.
0: No, that's really helpful. One of the areas on due diligence that I always find interesting, because I've heard this a number of different ways from investors, is TAM or total addressable market. I've had a few investors that say they don't even care about TAM. TAM is like not important because it's so hard to calculate TAM. And another investor that really thinks that comes to mind when I was talking to Eric Paley, he said that TAM is something that a lot of investors can get notoriously wrong because a lot of what they're investing in are developing markets versus, you know, in new markets, maybe blue oceans, rather than markets that are already, you know, developed. How do you think about, you know, when you see an opportunity, maybe the market opportunity might be Small now, but might have maybe a growth rate, or you know, maybe you don't know what the growth rate is, but it could be massive. Do those opportunities look interesting to you at all, or do they have to kind of out of the gate have to already have a massive target market?
1: It's a great question. I've heard that, that you know, what's the action of TAM? You know, we look at a multitude of data points. We do look to see, okay, is there a market? Is this market growing? Is the market right for disruption? You know, we look at a lot of the macro trends. You know what's core to Overton is that we invest around the evolving consumer. So whether or not it's around the demography, we look for new experiences. We look for category defining products and services. So we might look at TAM to say, okay, how is how large is this potential opportunity? Whether or not you do a tops down or bottoms up, but fundamentally we look at other metrics around just unit economics. So. Is this a real business? And if this is a real business, how big can it be? Can they get to a hundred million dollars in sales? And what would that likely look like? But we definitely look, I mean, we definitely try to size the market and we look to see what's out there. But again, we will not, I mean, that's just one particular data point, but it's not the only thing that we look at.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I'd love to know as well, you know, since team is obviously, especially at the early stages, team is really sometimes all you got. I know you're post revenue, there's already MVP in some context or or there's already revenue coming in. But I would love to just talk about like the effects of COVID and if, you know, finding conviction amongst founders, since you have to meet with them remotely, has that been disruptive at all to your process?
1: You know, it's interesting. So Overton launched at the end of 2018. We started investing from our fund, which is fund one, in April of last year. We ended the year, you know, pre-COVID with six portfolio investments. This year, we will have ended the year with four additional investments. So we have a portfolio of 10 partner companies. Those four actually have all been made. Those four investments have all been made in a you know, a COVID environment. So if the question becomes, you know, usually pre-investment, we'd want to meet, you know, in person, but obviously everybody's adjusted. It hasn't really impacted us, you know, at all just because we're a new fund and it is what it is. I guess the biggest impact was because we've been in also fundraising at the same time. So it impacts, you know, new LPs coming into the fund. That has actually been more of an impact than per you know necessarily our investing has. But I do have to say that now with essentially zero commuting time between my partner and me. We have a lot more virtual meetings where we're actually seeing a lot more, at least having those face-to-face meetings where, you know, before we might be able to see, you know, one or two, you know, a day. Now we can, you know, scatter, we can see a lot more. So that's actually been a positive and hence how we've been able to add to our, you know, growing, you know, list of, of amazing uh, portfolio investments.
0: Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. How, You know, through COVID, since you don't have in person meetings and don't have that commute to in person meetings, even commute to work, it's made investors a lot more efficient if that's fair to say, in terms of being able to see a lot more opportunities. Where I wonder, and I love your thoughts around this, I've heard from investors that it's harder to establish conviction during COVID. The one area that has been really tough is when they don't have a pre-existing relationship with the founder, or if it's a warm introduction, it's not a very strong warm introduction, or if it's cold. But when you haven't met the founder pre-COVID, that it's really hard to maybe establish conviction in that founder during. Have you come across that or not so much?
1: You know, for us, not so much. We have... You know, seen companies that, you know, maybe we passed the first time. So we already knew them through a second time, if it was like a second, uh, a raise. But like I said, you know, these four investments that we've made in the last, you know, three months, we hadn't met the founders previously. And, and so it's all been in this virtual world. So for us, it hasn't been. I think what's been most important is having conviction on the investment thesis. What is it that we need to within our portfolio? What are we super bullish on? How has COVID impacted our investment thesis? You know, etc. That to us is more important. But the you know, fine. Instead of having you know dinner together in person, we might do you know a bunch of in or whatever virtual calls. But you can still form that communication. I guess the only difference is if we, if we saw them walking down the street, the question is, would we even recognize them? Because we're so used to seeing, you know, the, the neck up, so... <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's
0: shame. Of course, of course, exactly. Well, and especially now with the masks, it'd be really, really tough to also recognize them. We'd love to also talk as well about your thesis. What I find just as an outsider looking at your portfolio, you know, you invest in both software, b 2 b to c businesses, as well as consumer brands. And I'd love to know like the thesis behind what you invest in and your focus is on.
1: Great question. So if we take a step back, Overton is all about the evolving consumer. So whether or not the consumer is a business or a traditional, you know, customer. So, you know, we're looking for, you know, new experiences, category defining products and services and business models. We look at essentially for three things. We're looking, are, are, we invest in next generation commerce. So that could be D2C brands, like, you know, traditionally monopolistic brands, anything that reduces e-commerce friction. We, you know, it could be around sustainability. So for example, the brand that you're referring to that's in our portfolio happens to emit a menswear called Stant brand, but it's all about just in time and personalized. So there are, creating made to measure men's clothing at a fraction of the price and much faster than you would get if you were to have it you know created, by someone else. So essentially, it's made to measure. That's democratized at a value price, shipped directly to your door, and you'll you know seven to ten days. But there's a st- sustainability play because it's just in time, and it's not the traditional. It's still asset light, so it's an asset light inventory model. So that's next gen commerce. We're also very bullish on the consumerization of health and the future of work. So that you know, future of work could be around HR tech, enterprise tools, you know, workflow. And again, this is really comes not only where the the evolving consumer is going. So if it's around freelance talent or the gig economy, it also goes back to, you know, Carrie's superpower coming from, you know, that HR talent space. So those are kind of the three macro sectors that within our thesis.
0: I know I, I really appreciate that. So it seems like if it is a physical good, it has there has to be a technology component or something advanced in their supply chain, so to speak, for you to be interested. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, at the end of the day, there needs to be some sort of protective moat, right? So, you know, is this more of a first to market or is this we're going to be that much better or we have a defensibility because there's a tech underlay? So, you know, is this really customized, personalized?
0: No, that's really helpful. Has COVID changed your point of view on any specific trends? No, I mean, actually, I'm sure
1: we've both heard this term that, you know, COVID's only accelerated a lot of these trends, right? It's you know, over what what has it been? Nine months, you know, five years, you know, and, and nine months, you know, et cetera. But, you know, our thesis has remained the same. I mean, we're we've Again, like I said, we're very bullish on the future of work. There are certain trends because the the consumers evolve. So you know, healthy eating and well being. So consumers are prioritizing you know, mind and body health. That yes, happened, but I think it's even more so to the masses today. I mean, look at Pel- Peloton's a great example. It's just a lot of our trends, it hasn't changed. It's only just now become almost more popular, but we have not shifted. So COVID really hasn't impacted the way that you know things that we're looking for in terms of adding them to the portfolio.
0: Right. COVID only in some ways makes you more bullish about the areas that you're focused in, if that's fair to say.
1: Yeah. But so to answer your question, COVID has not changed our view on any specific specific trend. I might, if listening back maybe in, in six months, twelve months, 18 months from now, I might change that. But for right now, these companies are doing quite well, despite being in a COVID world because of the spaces that they play. Got it.
0: Got it. So what is one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital?
1: So Mike, we hear these you know horrible stats around you know, the lack of women, lack of diversity in venture capital, either those that receive VC backing or those that are at funds making investments. And while Boverton is not an impact fund, we are happy to say that you know, over half of our portfolio companies happen to be businesses and that are diverse led because we believe in diversity, just, you know, both from a talent perspective, as a culture perspective. So, you know, we just, one thing that we would change around VC, and I think just even the larger just landscape and and the way that people think is the importance of just diversity we should not be having to have these conversations because it's so important that you know why diversity matters in terms of conversation and having diverse views so that's that's what i would change
0: no i completely agree and what i think is interesting that another investor made i think it was Soraya Darabi that first made this point that the change also has to begin from the top in order to see real change where you know Lpe's pension funds actually start investing and thinking about in diverse teams when it comes to manage their capital in the venture capital space because also, all about you know networks, and so you know if you have a diverse team as a VC fund, then you're probably going to be investing in diverse founders. So it kind of all trickles down there.
1: You're right, and I would almost say that for us, because you know within our LPs, we're not an institutional fund. Um, these are we have a very large cap table of you know it's a friends and family fund, but from a deal flow perspective, we would love to be able to see more you know black founders, for example. And we go to all, you know, we're we're mentors, mentors of different accelerators, but you know, sometimes we don't either see the deals or the pipeline come through. So I agree, it should start at the top, but there's also this at the bottom too. And, you know, part of, you know, what we do is we have between our operating partners through, you know, our different networks. You know, at the end of the day, we're we're trying to find the, the best deal flow, but we again happen to have, you know, we're over fifty percent of our fund happens to be diverse led. It's very important to
0: us. Yeah. I mean, that's terrific that your funds are 50% diverse led. That's that's just awesome and really great to see. And not only that, I mean, like, you know, there's a ton of data out there as well about how diverse teams actually lead to a lot more successful outcomes, typically. So it's not like impact, it's not socially driven, like it's really financially driven as well.
1: Oh, it, the data is there. We actually have a slide as part of our investor presentation. Two, actually two interesting slides. One is about the importance of diverse teams and just the metrics around the performance and how they perform higher and also around the uh, uh, first time funds typically outperform second and third time funds because they happen to be hungrier or more aggressive and and they're more, you know, studious I guess on their screening and and their due diligence process so we'll see.
0: That's great. That's great. That's awesome. So what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: So I will start with the the second question first which is what's inspired me professionally and I'm actually reading it now so I'm only halfway through, but I really like the premise and this is the Reed Hastings Aaron Mayer book called No Rules Rules and you know it's all about the importance of building uh, team density and you know really retaining the very best uh, performers, which obviously resonates extremely well with early stage companies, not just large ones like Netflix but you know, it's just the importance of talent and just having an open dialogue with team. So that would be the kind of the business type book. And then personally, I love just business books in general. If I were to read books, normally I like magazine, I, I love The Economist. Usually they just kind of end up, you know, piling up. But uh, I love just reading those feature stories. But two books that I've really enjoyed reading is, you know, Good to Great by Jim Collins and The Cultina Brands.
0: Fantastic. No, those are all great. Those all seem fantastic. I haven't read Reed Hastings' book yet, The No Rules Rules, but that sounds really interesting. It gets, goes back to your point about how talent at the early stages is so vital and so important because at the end of the day, companies are people. So my final question to you is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received?
1: Do something that you really enjoy doing so
0: don't settle that's a great piece of advice i love that and that's a great spot to end on do something that you enjoy doing and don't settle. I love that. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun. Well, Mike, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much.
1: I've really enjoyed the conversation.
0: And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Michael. You can follow him on Twitter at Michael underscore Nogan. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit the consumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks.